You're listening to The Close-Up, the Film Society of Lincoln Center's weekly podcast series. This is Brian Brooks, Managing Editor of FilmLink.com. And this is Eugene Hernandez, Deputy Director of the Film Society. On this edition of The Close-Up, we're featuring a conversation with Ethan Hawke. Hawk, whose excellent work in Richard Linkletter's Boyhood earned him an Oscar nomination this year for Best Supporting Actor, has a new documentary called Seymour and Introduction, which he directed. The film explores the life and lessons of the legendary Seymour Bernstein, who had an illustrious career as a concert pianist before dedicating himself entirely to teaching the instrument. The touching film screened at last year's New York Film Festival, where it received standing ovations. It's a lucid portrait of a brilliant and generous man as well as an inspirational film about the patience, concentration, and devotion that are fundamental to the practice of art and life. During the festival, we paid tribute to Ethan Hawke with an intimate dinner followed by a discussion with New York Film Festival programming director Kent Jones. The lively and illuminating conversation traced Hawke's remarkable career as an actor from Dead Poet Society to Boyhood, as well as his development as a filmmaker. Seymour himself joined the conversation after Hawk admitted that in order to understand his reason for making the film, one would have to hear him play. Mr. Bernstein then treated the crowd to a lovely rendition of a Brahms intermezzo. It was the perfect ending to a truly inspiring evening. So let's go now to an evening with Ethan Hawk with a special musical interlude from Seymour Bernstein at the 52nd New York Film Festival. Um, you know, Ronnie had had said that we would talk about boyhood and that we would talk about Seymour and what I thought was that actually, I think of all of it together, I wanted to talk about continuity and the continuity of your career because your career and your life as an actor and as an artist. Because um, when I was thinking about what we would speak about and when I was watching Seymour, I was actually thinking about the fact that you know you were saying that you had started when you were very young so you've 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 been acting for most of your life and that during that time you've developed a very um uh fruitful and long-lasting relationship as a human being and as an artist with a great filmmaker Richard Linklater a mutual friend and that you guys have done uh, these three films together, Before Sunrise, Before Sunset, and Before Midnight that take place over one span of time, that you did Boyhood. And Boyhood is the kind of thing that I promise you, there are, no, there are very, very few actors and directors who would have the patience and the dedication to make a film like that. But... <laughs> But by the same token, to me, when I think of Boyhood and when I saw Seymour, to me they became inextricably linked because it seems to me that there are very few people who would have the patience to make the film about Seymour that you did, which is a film, and Seymour I want to acknowledge right now is with us tonight. and to honor Seymour in the way that you did and to, let's say, share his presence with us and to make the film that you did. So that's where I wanted to start, Ethan. I wanted to talk about that kind of dedication and that kind of commitment to continuity over time. Well, that sounds interesting to me. Okay, good. Yeah, Yeah, really interesting. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I I suppose that a a good place to begin uh, would be... uh, how your relationship with Rick developed over the years, if you feel so inclined, well, Rick Linkletter. Richard Linkletter, uh, in 1991, right, made a film called Slacker, which became, along with Nirvana, 
right? And along with Doug Copeland's Generation X and along with a bunch of other artwork started to define what my generation had to say. That was different than the baby boomers, that was different, I mean, and there's new generations coming and what are they gonna say and all that, but I remember going to the Angelica because a bunch of us say you have to see Slacker. And sitting there and watching, it was interesting because I was born in Austin, so it was really interesting for me to see this movie, this Austin filmmaker, a guy I hadn't ever met. And this is around the time that you're starting as an actor, too. Absolutely. Dead Poets yeah. Society. Dead Poets Society is years 80, before. 89? 89, yep. right? And um, I, I mean, I, I don't really know. I remember vividly walking home from the movie because, funnily enough, the people I was with didn't like it. Mm -hmm. You know how that happens sometimes. And I no longer like them. Yep. You know? And so, they're not here tonight, right? They're not here tonight. No, none of them are here tonight. Funny how that works. Yeah, isn't well, it? Yeah. And so I remember walking down Mercer Street and thinking, what the hell was that movie about? Mm -hmm. And why did it feel so. It felt like a new voice. Mm -hmm. you, you know, and it felt. For somebody who had been a student of the arts, you understand, you know, you have writing teachers and you listen to music and you understand this idea of voice and you have teachers who try to tell you what it means. But there's something, for those of you who remember, it's the thing, the most memorable moment is not the best moment in the movie, but the moment that that young woman comes up and says she has Madonna's pap smear. Yeah. You know? And uh, yeah. I remember like, just kind of stewing about why one would include such a moment in a movie. I wasn't even positive I liked it. Yeah. You know? But I knew that it was incredibly interesting. And when you talk about continuity, and, and I think, and I see Seymour over there, and I think about my friendship with Rick, because, you know, Michael Amareta is here tonight, who directed me in Hamlet, and there's, there's more than one, continuity isn't just Rick and I, continuity yeah. is You've made a, two films with Michael now. Yeah, but, but yeah. it's not just yeah. Michael and I either, yeah. it's, it's, it's all of us. Yes. You, you know, the more, yes. it's you. You, you know, I mean, it, it's the New York Film Festival, it's the people here, it's mm -hmm. what do we care about, what do we think is interesting, what, what do we want to write about, what do we want to watch movies about. I mean, I, I, I made this movie about Seymour, and that's not disconnected from Rick, yeah. um, because Rick made a documentary called Inning by Inning about yes. the baseball coach of a Texas uh, baseball team that is kind of a zen baseball, inning by inning, breath by breath, moment by moment, and the idea about baseball, it, that people think it's really boring, but the interesting thing about baseball is, of course, that on any pitch, mm. the whole dynamic of the change can, can change, yeah. but it probably won't. What will probably happen is exactly what you think will happen, right, right. but it but might it, but not. But it might not. And, and on that principle, the whole thing thrives, and I remember watching, and, f and f we've been having this tremendous success with our documentary, but Rick couldn't find a home for his documentary. Yeah. I mean, this is, it's, right. it's, it's, it's a fascinating thing about what we do, yeah. making movies, telling stories. And seeing that documentary, and then I shortly after met Seymour, and I thought, oh, what Seymour's doing with the piano is exactly what this baseball coach yeah. was doing. And, and everything is connected is what I'm getting at, yes. is, is, is that it's, it's bigger than that. I remember, Michael, what was it? It was, I remember Rick and I came he, he's, to he's, He actually he had, had to, to leave go. for his screening. Right, okay. Yeah. But anyway, so he's not here. I'm talking about him. I was just being nice. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, <laughs> <no>. <laughs> uh, but at least anyway, you still talk to him. Yeah, I can talk to him. Yeah, but yeah. no, the point is that we were at the Sundance Film Festival once, and he was doing a documentary about... At Sundance. Yeah, yeah, about film and everything. And, and Michael was one of the first people that was truly hip that Rick was serious. Yes. That, and, and he wanted Rick to be in his documentary about this thing he was making about film, of which I don't remember much. But that, uh, you know, I, I'm using it as an example to say about how much we're all in this together, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. And that, that the one thing that's most interesting to me about being 44 is how much you start to see that. You start to see yourself as part of a, a wave.
yes. that is bigger than you. I mean, I think the reason why people have been enjoying our documentaries Seymour is because, um, and I said this to Josh from AMC, who's here tonight, who's a really, if you like the movie Boyhood, uh, the reason why the movie exists is because these people at IFC and AMC. Yeah. I mean, the, the, people talk about, how did you make a movie over 12 years? Blah, blah, blah. You know, oh, it's amazing. Mm. The, the biggest miracle of that movie is that somebody believed, somebody believed in the idea enough yeah. to not recoup on their investment yes. in a world where everything is about money and, the, and what's happening next year. These guys who are here tonight said, you know what, I'll take a break from that line of thinking yeah. for a minute and I'll give Richard Linkletter a chance. Mm -hmm. And Richard Linklater wasn't making anybody a ton of money. It's not like he's taking a chance on Steven Spielberg or something, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and, and so I'm really indebted to you guys. And I wouldn't be here tonight if you guys didn't greenlight that movie, you know? And, and so the older I get, the more I realize that I don't know where any idea comes from, mm -hmm. you know? And, and, and a thing like continuity is the most interesting thing in the world to me because it's generational or mm. or 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 is it i mean there seymour is and seymour's affecting me and you know how old were you when i was born 15 how old were you in 1970 yeah that would be 44 years ago you're eight Yes. So you were 43. He's 43, 43. So, right. It's astonishing yeah. that you're 87. Yeah. Well, well, part of the reason why I made this documentary, right, is because I'm, it's a strange thing for me that the Before Trilogy finished this year, really, 13 months ago. The, well, bef the Before Trilogy, Before Midnight. Yes, but maybe there will be another one in 11 yeah, years. Maybe. Yeah, maybe. But, you so. know, yeah. But it was interesting to finish Before Midnight at Sundance last year, yes. which was this, which felt to me, yes, yes, there may be another, but Ryan would tell you that my wife, that I, after Before Sunset, yes. I was obsessed with Before Midnight. I, it was like an itch you couldn't scratch. I, it felt like a job undone. There's right. a Zen cone to the end of Before Sunset, the second film. Yes. Am I just drifting all over the place? No, 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 not right? at all. Okay. Well, not at, at, the, all. at the end of Before Sunset, mm -hmm. there's there's this kind of Zen cone of a thing where like she just says, "You're gonna miss that plane," yeah. and I in, say, "I know." In the and voice of was, Nina Simone. Yeah. 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 And for me personally, yeah. it was a very uh, volatile moment in my life yeah. where I wasn't sure where I was gonna land. And this idea of making a third film was very important to me. Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure about a fourth. It's possible, but the, the, the third film, you know, if the second film was a call, the third film was an answer. Yes, right. And I feel that if there were a fourth film, it would be starting a second trilogy. or so. It would be some new yeah. call and response. Mm -hmm. It's some, uh, but to have that end, at the same time, we started before, we started Boyhood before we started Before Sunset. Well, Boyhood started in 2001. Right, right. And, and Boyhood started in 2001, 2001. and we yeah. finished, we finished Before Sunset in 2000? 2003 or four. Oh yeah, right, yeah. 2003, so it was after. Boyhood was before, yeah. and then, uh, and so Sunset and Midnight both finished during the production yeah. of it. And so to have them both end within these last 14 months mm -hmm. has felt like a huge, uh, you know, what's like a snake's shedding a skin or something. Yeah. Seymour and I have been working on this uh, documentary for a few years. It finished this year. Mm -hmm. um, I did Macbeth Across the Street last yes. year, which is kind of a accumulation of a, of a decade-long did a rededication to the theater. Mm -hmm. And so for some reason, I feel incredibly naked here tonight in that this moment is, it's a finishing moment mm. for me, you know, and I don't really know. So words like continuity are really interesting to me. That was a long answer. <laughs> <laughs> well, but it doesn't, it's okay that it's a long answer because it's a, it's a discussion. So that's all right. Okay. I don't want sound bites. Okay. You guys don't either, right? You know. Um, <laughs> And, and uh, 
It's interesting that you say that, though, because it feels to me, I, I mean, in the movie, in Seymour and Introduction, the moment when Seymour is with his student and he's saying the pulse is constant at the beginning of the film, yeah. um, it never ends. Like a mantra. Yes. Yeah. Um, that, to me, uh, seems very, very connected to your practice as an actor. The one thing that I've always deeply admired about your work is that you trust in simplicity. Um, which I think is something that's very, very important and pretty rare. There's uh, an amazing... Um, uh, Jean Cocteau did a drawing for Seymour's uh, debut in Paris, right? Mm -hmm. Seymour was debuting in Paris, and his manager asked Jean Cocteau to do this little drawing, and, and he did it. And it, it's, it's not here tonight, but we used it as a poster for these things because it's so unbelievably simple. Mm -hmm. um, you know, like a Matisse line drawing or something. Mm -hmm. It's so simple. And more than anything else, that's what I love. Yeah. Um, whenever anything can be a clear line and the line vibrates. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, when you see a piece of theater, when you see a movie, and you can't even articulate why it's speaking to you, mm -hmm. you know? That's, yeah. that's what... I think we all live for, you know, I mean, that's what life feels like. Yeah. And you mentioned, you, you, you said, you know, before that for the last 10 years, you've rededicated yourself to theater. And, you know, you did the Tom Stoppard. Mm -hmm. It's actually pronounced Tom Stoppard. Right? Stoppard. Stoppard. <laughs> yeah. No, it's true. Actually. I always get that wrong. <laughs> um, and, it's and okay, you're American. That's what he would say. <laughs> <laughs> um, what do you feel are the differences and the similarities between acting before a camera and acting on stage? It's, a, it's an old kind of chestnut well, Tom question. Tom Stoppard would say, the difference between acting in a movie <laughs> is if you don't like me, I'm fired. And if it's a play, you're fired. <laughs> <laughs> That's the difference. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, for me... I've always uh, wanted to be in the room with talented people. Yep. And uh, if you could see Richard Linklater after the marathon of Coast Utopia, I remember he came to see it twice. Yeah. You know, and the way when something vibrates, yeah. it's powerful. And a movie does the same thing, and a play does the same thing, and a song can do it, and the piano can do it, and a painting can do it. Mm -hmm. and. That's what everybody's chasing, yeah. I, 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 I think. Um, and it's what we're all chasing as audience members or creators or as lovers or as friends. When you, as a friend, you know, if you and I stumble on a moment that's true, yeah. something that's true, it changes you. Yes. I remember um, Julie Delpy was saying on the, when we were making Before Sunrise, she kept saying that, maybe we should hire somebody else to write some jokes, mm -hmm. you know, that the movie really wasn't fundamentally very funny mm -hmm. and that it's going to be incredibly boring, mm -hmm. you know. And, and, and Rick said, I've been in a rehearsal room with you for five weeks. I spend every day with you, and I'm not bored. Yep. And if anybody is bored, then I'm not making the movie for them. You know, that I've never been in a plane crash, and I've never been involved in any government espionage, mm -hmm. and I've never had a machine gun fired at me, yeah. and my life has been full of drama. And the most dramatic thing that has ever happened to me is actually connecting with another human being. Yeah. And if you experience that strange, and it can happen with your kid, mm. and it can happen with your mom, or it can happen with a lover, or it can happen but where all of a sudden everything is different mm -hmm. because there's a connection that's made. Yeah. And everything, you look at the last years differently because this moment, it led you to this moment. Yeah. And Rick was saying, like, what if we could make a movie about that? Mm -hmm. You know, what if we didn't have to hyperbolize life? Mm. What if we said, wow, life is amazing enough? Yeah. You know, like we don't need Woody Allen to write our jokes. Yeah. Like it's funny enough just here. It's kind of this the whole scene in Boyhood about, um, which is a weird combination of something my son said and something that I think Linkletter really believes, which is the kid says to me, Are, do any elves exist? 
<laughs> right? And, and it's kind of that moment where you discover, yeah. you know, I hate to break it to anybody here, but that Santa Claus, you know, yeah. and it's like we're, we're kind of meditating on this. Take like it easy because you, know, you never know. Yeah. You never know who's here. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. so this kid's going, well, do elves exist? Mm -hmm. I'm like, well, whales do. That's yeah. my line. You know, whales, which is this thing I had said to my son, well, you mm -hmm. know, whales exist. And what if I told you there's this amazing mammal that lived under the ocean mm -hmm. and you could drive a car through his heart and he mm -hmm. sang songs and his friends came? And mm -hmm. wouldn't you think that was magical? And the kid says, yeah, but are there any elves, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And, and, and that's kind of the baseline of Linkletter's feeling about life is that everybody wants it to be something radical. Mm -hmm. And yet they're missing the fact that it's radical that we're even here tonight. Mm -hmm. you, you, you know that, wow, what if I told you about a room of a hundred people that actually cared about art and cared about communication and cared about each other and cared about raising money for the community and cared about, like, wouldn't you think that was amazing? Yeah. You think, yeah, I guess. Is that what's happening? Yeah. You, you, you know? And so that's kind of the Linkletter school of thought. Yeah. And that's, yeah, it's actually, there's a, Wittgenstein wrote a, has a little epic thing where he said, you know, people always talk about how amazing lightning must have looked to prehistoric man as if it doesn't look, you know, amazing. any less amazing <laughs> now. Yeah, yeah, right, um, right, yeah, right. So. Yeah. What? There's a great thing Seymour says sometimes about, I, I love it. It got, it, it, he, he said it at a, I, I literally could have killed him. We made this whole <laughs> documentary and he told us amazing, I never thought to ask him what his first teacher was like. You know, I mean, it's such an obvious question somebody in an audience asked. And he talked about, correct me if I'm wrong, but um, one of his first teachers was walking him outside of a building. Was it in the city? Out of her home. Mm -hmm. And there were a bunch of people walking into a church. And above the church, tell the story, tell the story. Okay, can you hear me? Yeah. All right. The woman's name was Clara Husserl, and she was married to a doctor, <clears throat> Dr. Husserl. And Dr. Husserl was the brother of the famous philosopher Husserl. If you ever ask a philosopher about the name Husserl, they grow pale. He was one of the most difficult philosophers to understand. Anyway, when I was 14 or 15, I was her pupil. She was, by the way, a student of Lechetitsky, who studied with Czerny, who studied with Beethoven. So I'm related to Beethoven. <laughs> anyway, she, my name was Sonny at the time, so she wanted to take Sonny to Carnegie Hall. And I picked her up at her home. And across the street from her home, there was a church. And there happened to be the priest and some of his congregation on the steps. And over the church, there was a full moon. What do you suppose Mrs. Husserl screamed out loud, loud enough for the priest to hear? She said, Sonny, look at that moon up there. And those fools tried to tell us where God is. <laughs> and that's the thing that, that Rick wanted to make a movie about. Yep. You know? yep. You know? And he did. <laughs> a space between. Yep. You know? The space between us. That is. There's something honest happening. There's some kind of space between us. Yep. And that's where the moon is, you know? Something. And he made the movie, but you did too. You both mm -hmm. made it. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, I wonder to, if you could just reflect a little bit on the experience of making movies, a movie like Boyhood, and then working in a more, in a, in a bigger budget kind of, you know. Yeah, uh, like Training Day or something training like that. Training Day or, yeah, I mean, in, yeah. A, in a more... That, you know, I've had these weird experiences in my life of making really low-to-the-ground movies. And one of my first big experiences was Dead Poets Society, you know? I remember that Peter Weir, you know, it's, it's all now seen. George worked with me on Dead Poets Society. Um, we've been working together that long. And 
that Peter Weir, who had directed Witness, and he had directed Picnic Hanging Rock, and he said, brilliant, Gallipoli, Last Wave, amazing movies, you know. Um, he, he wanted to do this big scene where the end where I'm supposed to stand on the desk and say, oh, captain, my captain, and Robin's supposed to say, thank you, boys, and the movie ends. And so uh, Peter had built into the set these speakers, right? And he didn't want to record any sound. We were going to dub the sound later. And he, he was cranking Morricone's score yeah. to uh, the mission. Dun, 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 yes. you know. It fills your eyes up with tears the second you hear it, you know, I mean, and so he, and he wanted, because there were a lot of extras in the scene, you know, and he wanted all these boys to be flushed and, and he was kind of creating a, you know, that feeling of storm and drum. I mean, he wanted to make it just very important feeling. And it's an amazing education for an 18-year-old to sit there because there were so many things happening at one time. This music was pulsing, and this is my big scene, right? So I was really nervous. And, uh, and the guys from Disney, the execs from Disney, were standing there going... <laughs> and... Um, and and Peter said, oh, excuse me, turn on the music, turn on the music. What, is, what does this mean? What does this mean? He says, well, Peter, it's, I mean, it's, it's the 11th hour. And, and Peter said, this is one of those moments. Like, we all live our life and we're nice to each other and everything like that. But this is one of those moments where you have to decide who you work for. Because if this scene doesn't work, we should have never come here. We should have never done this. We should have never bothered. And if you're trying to tell me that I should hurry, then you should go fuck yourself. Right? Or fire me. Which is, I think, what he, he didn't use the F word like I did. He didn't take it. He said, you should fire me. Because I only, I, I don't know how to make a good movie, but I know how to make a bad one. And what I'm trying to do is something I don't know how to do. You, you, you know? And, if you're either, and the guy's like, well, come on. No, not come on. I mean it. Like, if, if we want to be just like every other movie, there's definitely one way we can do it, which is, like, all point at each other and go like this and say it's going to be over in half an hour. Or we can try to do something special. Right? Well, th that's all very interesting. That's one dynamic that's happening. The other dynamic is their beautiful, sensitive Robin Williams is with sheets of tears pour pouring down his face. Mm -hmm. Thank you, boys. And, and Peter's going, now, Robin, here's the deal. If you're crying the boys are going to be worried about you. Mm -hmm. And I need you to be worried about them. You know? And obviously, here's what's going to happen is Mr. Keating is going to close this door and he's going to walk to the parking lot and he's going to get in his car and he's going to turn his car and he's going to burst out sobbing. Mm -hmm. But not now. Right now, he wants them to sit down because he doesn't want them to get in trouble. You know? And then there's the other problem of all these, like, extras who feel like, when's lunch, you know? I mean, it, it, it's like, and it was this amazing experience that I had the privilege, and, and Norman Lead, Norman Lead, Norman Lloyd, who was there, I don't know how, to me he seemed Norman, 90. Norman Lloyd is turning 100 in November. Well, okay, and, and so Seymour, yep. shut up, okay? You're like 15 <laughs> years old. And, and, and Norman Lloyd, Seymour, if you don't know, was, was a member of the Mercury Theater Company, right? And he seemed ancient to me. Okay, I was 18, I don't know, he was probably 76 or something like that. He, it was like, whoa, this is a very old person. And, 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 and Norman came up to me and he said, um, I was joking around on set because it was a little scene where the students are supposed to be walking through the hallways. And um, this would come as a giant surprise to my wife, but I was being a real jerk. And um, you know how you can hit like somebody's books and they all fall down from the back? Do you guys remember that? Well, kinda, yeah. kinda. Oh, anyway, whatever. I was joking around, yeah. right? And um, and Norman came up to me. Sure. You know yeah. what I mean? Okay. You kind of, yeah. they're carrying their books and they're walking. You just yeah. tip them and they all fall out. And yeah. and um, and Norman came up to me and he said, "You have no idea what's happening right now, do you?" And I was like, "What do you mean?" And he said, "You're having one of the most amazing experiences of your life." And I'd spent a bunch of time with him, and, and we liked each other. He said, it's not the right time to be joking. You know? mm. 
You're having an amazing, life-changing experience. And I, I forgive you for not understanding because you have nothing to compare it to. Yeah. I was like, what is he saying? And he started talking. He said, you know, I worked with Orson Welles. You know, we were part of the Mercury Theater Company, and I thought I was going to have dozens of these experiences. I thought I was going to meet a million people like Orson Welles. Mm. You know? And instead, I was having one magical experience that could light my whole life mm -hmm. and give me things to work towards. You know? And you're having one of those right now, and instead you kind of want to, you want to make it small. Mm. You know? And, uh, and I think about Norman Lloyd all the time. It's funny, Norman Lloyd spoke very beautifully when Robin died. Yeah. Um, and it's amazing Norman Lloyd's still alive and Robin isn't, you know? Uh, it's weird how life works like that. Mm -hmm. But the point being is that one of my first experiences was a big budget. This is a Disney movie. Yeah. But it had a very independent spirit at the helm. Peter Weir. Peter Weir is the guy who cast Norman Lloyd. Peter Weir was building this whole ship inside with Disney's money. Harder and harder to do. Yeah, it is. It's getting, it's getting very difficult. Yeah. But then on the other hand, you know, I remember a few years ago, Rick saying, you know, I've been trying to make this movie Bernie with Jack Black for three years, and I finally got the money, but it took me so long. And he said, I guess I had a good run. And, you know, that's it. Now, you know, uh, Rick has made, you know, boy after boyhood, he probably is, a, is going to be able to make, you know, quite a few more movies. Um, Maybe, yes, but, you know, the pendulum of success and failure is always swinging. Yes. You know, it's always swinging. And, you know, people can be kissing your ass one minute and the next minute mock you and ridicule you. And one of the things that Seymour talks about so elegantly is... is, mm -hmm. is Having your own judgment of your self-esteem, yes. you know, and Rick has always had that. Yes, that's you know, true. And, and one of the things we did the Newton Boys together, which was his first studio movie, and the great narrative of that movie is this movie I did with Matthew it's, McConaughey, and it was his first big studio Dwight movie, and yeah. Dwight Yoakam, Skeet Ulrich. It was a really cool thing, but the narrative, the press narrative, was oh, the indie darling tried to go big and he failed. Yeah. What a loser. He tried to get paid big money. This movie was just as personal to him, just yeah. as, as, as any of the other films. Um, and of course, that narrative was inaccurate. He was making an Altman-esque Western. He wanted to make a Western that was a comedy, and everybody was disappointed it wasn't Young Guns 3. Yeah. You know? They yeah. really wanted an action movie, and they didn't understand the movie, and so they mocked it. And he had to pick up his bootstraps and not cry in his milk and go on and make another damn movie. Yeah. You know, and I remember it was devastating to him because he had been so used to getting good reviews and things like that. Yes, I had had many bad reviews, and I could tell him that you can survive. <laughs> um, but uh, it it was very difficult for him. Yeah. This idea that he had sold out and failed. He was mm -hmm. like, "What do you mean I sold? I wrote this movie. I love this movie." Mm -hmm. um, but you know, it was a huge, huge learning lesson, and his response to it was to go and make Waking Life and tape simultaneously, which yep. was, it was, it was, you know, right as digital video was exploding, and he kind of had met this person in Austin and come up with a new form of animation. Bob Sabiston. Right? Yeah, yep. a new form of animation and made a whole movie about dream life, simultaneously made this little docudrama, kind yep. of inspired by what they were doing, you know, uh, what was that called? That big movement. It was such a big deal with celebration. Dogma. Dogma. Yeah. You know, he's just kind of looking at them. Well, again, that was an IFC. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that was an and, IFC and initiative. Yeah. Indigent. Indigent. Yep. Yeah. And mm -hmm. and um, tape was an amazing movie. But yeah. Both, and 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 IFC did Waking Life too. Both yeah. of those. And um, and that was his response to failure, which is something I always really admired. Is just to work harder. Yeah. To yeah. the response to, to keep perceived working. failure. Yeah. You keep know? working, yeah. yeah. And of course, you're in both. Of, let's say that you're in both of those films too. We should yeah. mention. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Did I not mention that? Yeah. yeah, yeah. You're listening to the close-up from the Film Society of Lincoln Center. The Film Society app, now available for iOS, iPhone, and iPad, and Android devices, lets you browse and discover our year-round programs and films 
Get the latest ticketing alerts and breaking festival news. Share with friends via social media. Create your own custom schedule and more. Download the Film Society app for free at iTunes and Google Play. The Film Society of Lincoln Center. Film lives here. And now, back to our program. I wanted to uh, ask you about, in Seymour, well, actually, the whole reason, the circumstances under which you and Seymour met were that you were seated together at a dinner and that you became so comfortable with him and you were on that wavelength and had made the connection and you shared with him a a fear that you had had. that was building up over the last 10 years, a stage fright, no? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um. Well, there's a great sense. Um, I was doing uh, Coast of Utopia, right across the street, and uh, there's a great sense that as you, uh, when you're young, you're allowed to be learning and everything, and there comes a moment in your life when you're asking yourself that you should know what you're doing. Mm-hmm. And I felt a great deal of shame about all my insecurity. Mm-hmm. Y- you know that that when you're young, insecurity can be kind of charming. Yeah. Um, and in somebody who's teetering on 40, one way or the other, it, it seemed kind of an embarrassment to mm-hmm. me. And and when I met Seymour, one of the things that's interesting about serious people at the piano is the intensity with which they are judged is far heavier mm-hmm. uh, than than acting. You know, I yes. mean, they often have one time at something and one finger misplaced yeah. will will be judged, and uh, and there's a great shame that can be attached. I mean, what I'm trying to say is that. One of the things that I found, it's, I don't want to talk about you so much in the third person with you right there, but that um, I felt instantaneously that you were saying that there was a pride one could take, that you have a right to be nervous, that what we're doing, someday we'll be dead. Someday with our time here is fragile, and we only, it is important if you, if you love the arts and you believe the arts have a power to heal, and you believe the arts are, you know, we all feel this. We read To Kill a Mockingbird and something in us shifts, right? You don't feel alone. You don't, you, f- you almost feel uh, righteous like Atticus and Scout because you love them. So their good behavior reflects well on you, right? I mean, it's, it's a beautiful thing that a powerful art can have, which makes you know, I want to be like Atticus, I don't want to be like those people. And, and art, I want to be like Beethoven. I want to be like Shakespeare. I understand beauty. right? It, it, it conjures the best in us. And that's what I, I feel. You know, Ryan's mother is, is a doctor, you know, and we're always bickering about whether or not what it's all right to give money to. Because everybody always wants to give money to disease and, 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 and obvious things. Especially a few years ago when the economy was really hurting, there was a... A great pull. All of a sudden, the arts just dried up. You know, well, I'll give to the opera. I'll give to this stuff when cancer's over. And and and, and it, that's a logical thing. And Ryan's mother feels that way. You know, when people are starving in the world, I don't give a shit what they're painting. Mm-hmm. You know, and my feeling is that our mental health mm-hmm. is incredible. As as in why we're alive is as important as if we're alive. You know, and great art makes us all always in contact with that that same feeling about why we're alive. You know, and and so that's what was I talking about? Stage fright. Stage fright. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So the point is, Seymour and I are talking, and Seymour says, you know, it's something to be nervous about. But this is, does relate. This is important. Yes. This isn't just like, are you going to get a good review or not? Right. This matters. Mm-hmm. Can you disappear? Can you disappear into your role? Can you be a part of something larger than yourself? Yep. Can you be a part of healing? And you know that 
you know, that it does matter. And so Seymour was saying to me, you don't need to be ashamed of being nervous. Because I was, what I was confused about, and I, I, I remember vividly making my Broadway debut. You know, I was in, um, in The Seagull. I remember thinking, I said, well, I was playing Constantine, mm -hmm. right? And I remember thinking, I'm going to kick ass. <laughs> I remember thinking that. I was, I was like, and I remember thinking, gosh, I remember some, you know, theater teacher was telling me that you needed to, like, relax. I remember thinking, God, I couldn't be any more relaxed. I really had that thought. I, I really, yeah. Yeah. and I just walked out there, and there I was, here I was, like, 37, and my back was in knots. Yeah. I was petrified to go on stage. I was petrified I was going to forget my lines. Mm -hmm. I was petrified I would embarrass Tom Stoppard. I was petrified. Jack O'Brien was a director. He'd worked so hard on this mm -hmm. thing. I admired him so much. There's this cast of 39 people. Mm -hmm. There was 1,200 people out there that paid $125, yeah. some of whom have fly, flown from Korea or something. Yeah. You know what I mean? And, and, I, I, and I wasn't sure. I'd read enough about Michael Bakunin, and yeah. I didn't even know what the hell I was doing. And... Um, and I was worried my voice wouldn't get to the back row, and this poor son of a bitch who bought the back row seats, and, and yet if I didn't, sh if I shouted, the person in the front row was going to hate it. Yeah. You know what I mean? And I just wanted to quit. Yeah. And that's where I was when I sat down next to Seymour. Yeah. And, and, and he basically, in a, a, in a longer conversation, said, you're on to something. Mm. No, don't go home and cry. Yeah. What are you going to do about it? Mm -hmm. Work harder. Go out there. Make it better. What can you do? What? Yeah. How can you help? Mm -hmm. You know. And and that's, and that was the thought. And when I, I felt I came home and told my wife, I was like, shit, I feel so much better. I was mm -hmm. really struggling. Mm -hmm. And it was a little bit like you know you read those books about a Zen person or something that slaps you across yeah. the face and all of a sudden you're like oh right there's the a right sky yeah. I kind of felt like that had happened to me that night and mm -hmm. of course I was I was googling Seymour like, what the, who the hell is this person yeah and um uh and then we said about the idea of talking someone into making a documentary about him mm -hmm. yeah. that someone turned out to be me but you know <laughs> you know I know <laughs> Is there, how many people in the room have seen Seymour? I'm just wondering if I could. A handful. Oh, a lot more people need to see it because, boy, I can tell you it's an extraordinary film. And the other night when um, I went to uh, introduce the film and introduce Ethan and, uh, and Seymour and then do the q and I, I, I stayed in the back to see the first few minutes. And before I knew it, it was an hour and a half later and it was time to do the Q&A. Um, and the film uh, affected me even more deeply than it did the first time. Um, it's it's an extraordinary piece of work, Thanks. and I'm really thankful that we have it in the festival. Well, we're so grateful to you. So yeah. let me be clear about that. Yeah, I I've never been. You know, I have to admit something. It meant a lot to me. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, Hamlet was rejected here before Sunrise was rejected here. <laughs> Gattaca was rejected here before Sunset was rejected here. No, I mean, no, you know, no, no. <laughs> I, it's been a lonely 30 fucking years, <laughs> all right? And I needed Seymour Bernstein to get my ass on this chair. Uh, <laughs> all right, man. Yeah. <laughs> um, before Sunset was not rejected by the New York Film Festival, that much I can tell you. I know that. Because I was on the selection committee and it wasn't uh, offered to us. You didn't come to us. Yeah. <laughs> I feel better. <laughs> yeah, we were very hurt. But mm, yeah. Can you tell us about the movie? Which, the, the, the well, can, yeah, if you could, yeah, so well, give a quick. Seymour, I often accidentally call him 85, but he's 87, okay? And he, uh, 85 when you shot the movie. 85 when I shot the movie. But now he's 87, and we cannot tell a lie. We have to tell the truth. And um, what do you think? I mean, would you... Um, what happened you was I met him at a dinner party, and I was really moved like I was just telling you about. But then I wanted to hear him play. 
And he likes to tell the story that it took me a year to have the time to actually listen. I don't think that's true. It might be true, but... All right. I mean, you sound so angry when you say that. <laughs> Here's my question for you. You ready? I think that if you played for everybody, they would know why I made a documentary about you. And I... It's not lost on me, and I know it's not lost on you that there's a piano over there. Uh-oh. <laughs> now look, this is what happened. Here is the story of what happened about my... Uh, I'm going to play for you. But this is what happened. We were in the green room... Why is it called the green room? Because, because performers are all nervous and they turn green. That's why. We were in the green room and Ethan comes over to me and says, you know, during the celebration for me uh, in New York, there's going to be a piano. And why don't you play something? And I turned white because <clears throat> I hadn't been practicing. You know, when you see all the screenings and, and the, my, my email, I have 600 uh, uh, letters on my email from the screening. People are writing to me. And I had no time to practice. So that happened several weeks ago. And what do you suppose I was experiencing? I'm letting down Ethan. I never liked to let down Ethan. So when he was making plans for the documentary, he said to me, now Seymour, you don't have to do this. You haven't performed in public for over 30 years, but would you consider giving a recital for my theater group? I turned white again, and I thought to myself, well, I can't let this man down. So. In preparation for that, I had to practice eight hours a day, as though I were going to make my New York debut. You don't sit down and play for a huge audience after 37 years so easily, right? So what happened? My taxi comes to Steinway. It's a beautiful rotunda. You saw it in the documentary. And I approached this, the Steinway showroom, and I saw a camera pointing through the window at this illuminated concert grand. I walked in, and there were eminent actors and actresses sitting there. And I thought, I'm going to die. I'm not going to be able to do this. Ethan comes out, and he introduces me. And a profound calm came over me. And it stemmed from the fact of what I told you. I can't resist him. I wouldn't let him down for the world. So even though I wasn't able to practice, this afternoon I went over one piece. And I thought, well, I'm going to give it a try. And um, can, can we have the light on the piano? Is that spotlight on? No, but it's not on. Can you turn the spotlight on? Oh, you can't? Let me see. All right, I'll try. I don't wear glasses anymore because two years ago, my eyes returned to normal. And my ophthalmologist said, oh my God. <laughs> he never heard of such a thing. And anyway, what? I'm wondering if you, I'll take the microphone. I wish they could put, it's all right, I'll try. No, I'm not, I'm gonna announce my piece. <laughs> so I'm going to play a Brahms intermezzo. And I have to tell you a story about this piece 
in relation to my past performances. When I was in my 20s, I lived in Newark, New Jersey, and there was a retirement home, get this, for retired intellectual Viennese women. Whoa! What an audience, right? So the director called me up and she asked if I would give a recital for them. And I played a group of Brahms pieces, including this one that I'm going to play for you. And at the end of the recital, the director came over to me and she said, our eldest resident here has to talk to you, but she's very old and you have to put your ear against her mouth because she can only whisper. So she brought me over to a wheelchair and there sat like a little shriveled bird. She must have been over 100 years old. And I put my ear against her mouth and this is what she said. I heard Brahms play those pieces. He came to Hanover and played them at Clara Schumann's funeral. <laughs> so, what does a 20-year-old boy do to hear such a story? I fell on the floor. I'm part of history. I'm sitting there next to history. So when I recovered, I put my ear back to her mouth and I said, how did he play? She said, he made a lot of mistakes. And, and you play much better. So now whenever my pupils play Brahms, I always tell them, you know, I played better than he did.
The Close-Up from the Film Society of Lincoln Center is produced by Brian Brooks, Nick Kemp, and Michael Oatmark. Our opening music is by Steelism. You can subscribe to The Close-Up on iTunes and Stitcher. The Film Society of Lincoln Center is a nonprofit arts organization based in New York City supported by individuals just like you. Founded in 1969 to celebrate American and international cinema, the Film Society presents year-round programming recognizing established and emerging filmmakers, supporting important new work, and enhancing awareness, accessibility, and understanding of the moving image. To learn more about what we do and support the Film Society by becoming a member, please visit filmlink.com, F-I-L-M-L-I-N-C.com. The Film Society of Lincoln Center. Film lives here. <laughs>